the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We're always so pleased when you join us. So is Jeff Sennis. He's our engineer. And Andrew Hurtliska, the producer. And James Emery White, the first guest, founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. His book, Hybrid Church, Rethinking the Church for a post Christian Digital Age. James, welcome back to Orlando. I hope you're well. I am, Pat. Thank you for having me. Why was it important to write this book? Well, it's certainly not a book that is a how to do ministry or how to live life in a pandemic world. That story has come and gone. It really is, as the subtitle suggests, how are we going to do life in a post-Christian digital world? Because that story has just started. And so this was written for not just church leaders, but anyone who cares anything about their faith or their parents, and they care about their children's faith. How are we going to live in this new context, and how do we pass things on in this new context? Not simply in the context of being post-Christian, but when the entire communications world has changed and has become digital. And that's what this book explores. Your book, James, is uh, contains six parts. Part one, our post-Christian world, and here's what you write. From Christian to post-Christian, the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and post-Christian spirituality. Uh, I want to hear about part one. This was really important for the book, I think, because I, I'm not sure that the average person, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, it's just that things have been moving so rapidly. Are, 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 I don't think the average person is aware of how quickly we have become a post-Christian world and how things have really changed. There have only been three major changes, three major realities for, and from a spiritual perspective in terms of culture. The Christian faith burst onto the scene in a pre-Christian world where how we communicated with each other was largely uh, oral in nature. And then with the conversion of Constantine and during that whole era, there, we entered the Christian world. And that lasted a long time. And mostly how we communicated was through written means. Just recently, I mean, I mean it's, it's unfolding as we are speaking, but it has clearly happened. We have entered into a post-Christian reality where our communication is largely digital in nature. And this is evidenced by, as you mentioned, the rise of the nuns. And the nuns are those people who, when surveyed, you know, am I a Baptist, Christian, Methodist, Catholic, Mormon, whatever, they simply check the box, nothing. You know, I'm none, none of the above. And that has skyrocketed to where that is now the largest religious group in America and continues to be the fastest growing. And that's, that's a seismic <laughs> reality to have taken place. And, of course, that's erupted into what would be considered a post-Christian spirituality. Um, and that is often very uh, – borrows heavily from the occult. And it also uh, leads to a post-Christian morality as well, which is deeply rooted in individualism. It's kind of a whatever I want, what is, what, whatever I want, whatever I want to think, feel, believe, behave – becomes the ultimate arbiter of what is moral, what is right. And so it really is a new world, and it is one that is catching a lot of people um, off, off guard. 
because they just weren't ready for it to come so rapidly. And that's what COVID did do. COVID did accelerate all of this. It didn't create it. It accelerated it and created this context. What do the nuns believe? Well, what the nuns believe is interesting. Um, They have a number of various beliefs or ideas. I mean, they're not atheists. That's the first thing we should say. Most of them are theists. They believe in God. What they've really rejected is anything related to dogma, anything attached to that theism that is spelled out, that is orthodox, that um, is transcendent, meaning stands outside of themselves. They want to believe in God. They want to believe in their understanding of God, their idea of God. So they mold God to themselves. So in other words, they almost become the God of this God they believe in, and they stand over that. So they don't particularly like authority. Uh, They don't particularly like anything spelled out um, in terms of orthodoxy. And so it is a, uh, calling it a do-it-yourself faith might be too uh, cheeky, but it's not far off the bat. James, uh, part one, our post-Christian world, you've explained that. Now I want to move on to the digital revolution. Uh, What happened in 2007? The medium is the (laughs) massage. Unavoidable tension. And then there's an interlude, church 3.0. So you're going to have to unravel all this for us. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting about 2007. Uh, This was something Tom Friedman wrote, a New York Times columnist. And in one of his books, he pointed out something uh, and uh, that struck me, and, and he made a very compelling case. He, he, had a, he said, what the heck happened in 2007? Only he didn't say heck. <laughs> but in 2007, the iPhone was released. Facebook left college campuses and entered the wider world. Twitter was spun off. Google bought YouTube and launched Android, uh, something Friedman left off his list. But Netflix began streaming videos. Amazon released the Kindle. Internet users surpassed one billion worldwide. And in many ways, although the Internet was invented before this, and the digital revolution, you could argue, happened before that in terms of its onset, that's when it entered the popular world. That's when it entered popular culture. It was 2007. And then I would argue that then in 2020, it was accelerated to such a degree that it became the wallpaper of our lives. So that was really what happened in in 2007. Um, And then I get into some other issues related to the digital revolution, such as the fact that, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a there's an uneasy tension, I think, in living with it, particularly if you're uh, someone who is a a Christ follower and also someone who's just uh, cares also about just the development of the mind and stability and so many things. I mean, there's been good and bad that has come with all of this, but. The fact that that is the case doesn't mean that it's not the new reality. So what I argue for in the book is that, yes, um, there is a tension between the good and the bad that has come with it, but this is our new reality. This is the world in which we live. And so, therefore, we need to begin to learn how to think, I would argue, Christianly about it and to know how to navigate its waters uh, missionally. James, let's move to part three. It's the Internet, stupid. Opening the digital front door. Planting online. Rethinking delivery. Tell us about it. Yeah, these are huge. um, In that part of the book, we begin to get into practical applications. Like, what does this mean? Like, how How do we now live? How do we begin to move forward? And one of the things I talk about is, as you mentioned, opening the digital front door, that the new front door, for example, for any business, any enterprise, any organization is online. It's a digital front door. It used to be a physical front door, but now it's digital. And that's also true for the church. And I don't think that uh, the church is, is awakened to that yet. But when somebody's going to check you out, they're going to check you out online. They're going to do that before they do anything. And they're going to attend online for months before visiting in person. And they want to be able to interact online. And they're accustomed to being served digitally in almost every possible way. And so that is um, key to remember in terms of if you want to open up your front door, again, any organization, but I'm speaking specifically in writing about the church, um, you're going to be doing that online first. 
And then comes the whole idea of planting online. I mean, this is something that very few people have explored, which is, you know, how do you plant a church online? How do you plant a church campus online? One of the biggest issues right now is going multi-site. I would argue that every church should be multi-site. One church, one campus is physical, one campus should be digital. Having an online campus um, to serve, to meet, to greet, to, to facilitate, to offer, to invite. And then that obviously goes into all the delivery systems, which is how are you going to deliver these kinds of things? What, how are you going to, you know, education has been completely revolutionized through um, online campus offerings. We have entire graduate schools and seminaries and colleges going entirely online. And um, this is thinking about delivery in entirely new ways. And again, in the marketplace, if you were to ask them, when's the last time you thought about delivery systems, they would say, uh, like, today, because it's the hottest issue and the most pressing issue. I think that for the Christian community, and maybe the church in particular, when you say, when's the last time you thought about delivery systems, they would say, I don't know that we've ever even thought about it. And yet there is an incredible revolution happening right now in how people want to receive content. My guest in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church, James Emery White. We're talking about his book, Hybrid Church, Rethinking the Church for a Post-Christian Digital Age. Folks, I just want to take a minute and uh, just share with you, we are working hard trying to bring a major league franchise, baseball franchise, to uh, Orlando in Central Florida. And you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com. OrlandoDreamers.com and just check in. Uh, let us hear from you. Let us know your feelings. We want to hear uh, what you think about all this. And if you'd like to be part of it, if we can, we can pull this off. So we're working hard trying to make it happen. Orlando, it keeps growing. We're a big market now, the 17th largest media market in North America, and uh, ready for another big league sport here. And uh, you, uh, you can be a big part of that. When we return with James Emery White, here's what lies ahead. Um, it's the internet, stupid. Opening the digital front door, planting online, rethinking delivery. And then we move to the new, new community. It's a lonely world, revisioning community, online campus community. Then we'll talk about a church for the unchurched. And then, thinking strategically. Stay with us. The book, Hybrid Church, Rethinking the Church for a Post-Christian Digital Age. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. James Emery White is our guest from Charlotte, North Carolina. His book, Hybrid Church, and James, as I mentioned, uh, the internet, stupid, opening the digital front door, planting online, rethinking delivery. What's this all about? Well, it's that things have changed, and we are indeed in a hybrid world. I mean, it's not simply pockets of it that are hybrid. Every single person lives in this slipstream between the physical and the digital. It's how we do grocery shopping. It's how we shop online and then maybe pick it up physically. It's how we use apps on our phones to do some things digitally that then enhance the physical experience. It's how we go to an airport. We go to a kiosk, and then we actually physically board a plane. So everything is this hybrid. It's not entirely physical. It's not entirely digital. It's a blend of the two. And so that's why when we talk about it's the Internet stupid, that's actually kind of a, 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 a look back to something that uh, political strategist James Carville once said in the election where Clinton first became president. Uh, in the midst of all of the clutter of it, he said, okay, we're going to have one message. It's the economy, stupid, and we're going to hammer that message home at every turn. Well, regardless of where you stand politically, that was effective. 
And so one of the messages that I would say to uh, anyone engaged in any aspect of church leadership who is interested in just the mission of the church, uh, what we're trying to do in this world is to understand it's the Internet, stupid. I mean, that is where people are going to check you out. That's where people are conversing and communing, and that's where uh, the bulk of the people that we're trying to reach and interact with in this world, that is where they live. And so that's what that whole section of the book about is really lifting it up. If this digital revolution has taken place, it has to be acknowledged. It's not something you can just kind of brush off. This is the world in which we live. James, tell us about uh, part four, the new, new community. It's a lonely world, you write. Revisioning community. Online campus community. Uh, Tell us more. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting blend right now, Pat, where people are more online than ever and they're more lonely than ever. Some have said the reason they're more lonely is because they're more online, but studies have shown that's not the case. People were lonely long before this. Bob Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone about how we were increasing in our loneliness and isolation, and this was before the Internet existed. And so this has been a cultural uh, reality that's been long in the formation. So when I talk about the new new community, what I'm talking about is, okay, if it's a lonely world and everybody's online, then what we've got to do is to rethink community that at least begins with the online presence. How can you begin fostering community online? Even if your vision is to move it to an embodied manifestation, so be it. But it has to begin online. That's where people are. That's where they're searching for community. And so revisioning community in light of that is all about the shift from gathering, which is what our model has been, to connecting and letting the, the uh, Internet become almost like a, a third place. The third place used to be like a Starbucks in the U.K. It was a pub. You know, you had your work, you had your home, and you're the third place to gather. And the church can be that third place. It's just going to have to happen online where we create those areas of community. Now, I know some might say, well, you can't have real community online. But when you talk to, say, someone in their 20s or their 30s where almost their entire community is online, um, they would say, well, yes, you can have it, and we do have it. And so I do think it's the church broadening its understandings. It's everyone broadening their understandings of not just simply what community is, but how it can be achieved, how it can be facilitated, how we can do the one another's uh, and have them enhanced by all things online. And that's what it leads to the whole issue of an online campus. An online campus is not simply streaming, you know, on Facebook a service or posting a service on YouTube. We're talking an actual campus, which kind of really stretches a lot of people's imaginations, but... Uh, we do it with great success at the church that I lead, and, and what it is is it's a, it's a, it's a campus. You, you go online, and there it is, and, and it has set service times and a chat room where there are pastors and hosts and people there to greet you, and it's very interactive, and the service that you experience is totally curated and developed for online consumption. There's online serving opportunities as well as invitations to embodied things. It's staffed like a physical campus, and it, 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 it functions that way in every possible way. And what we find is that we have people who attend both in person and online, and it just depends on where they're at that given week. But, that, but they have that community. You create an online community, and one of the key ways you do that is through an online campus. So it's a changing world just in terms of that one area alone, how we do community. James Emery White is in Charlotte talking to us about his book, Hybrid Church. James, you write about a church for the unchurched, the mission, reaching out online, process, an event. What's this all about? Well, you're serving me raw meat by asking that question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when it comes to the mission of the church, it hasn't changed for 2,000 years. I mean, we're trying to do something very simple. We're trying to evangelize the lost. We're trying to assimilate the evangelized. We're trying to disciple the assimilated, and then we're trying to unleash the discipled. 
we have the Great Commission that Jesus gave us, and that is what our mission is. And that begins with reaching people who are far from God. And so that mission needs to be deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained within us. Sadly, it's not. One of the things that uh, I believe you and I may have even talked about in, in past encounters has been the, the plague of spiritual narcissism facing uh, us today. And by spiritual narcissism, I mean uh, Narcissus was that great uh, mythical Greek character in Greek mythology who was so enamored with himself that he stared at his reflection his entire life, and he was immobilized and did nothing else but be captivated with his own needs and wants and looks and, and feelings. And there we get our term narcissism, the I, me, mine mentality. Spiritual narcissism is when you take that to the church in many ways, and you approach everything with your faith and your spirituality with, it's all about me. I want to go where I can be fed. I want to go where I get something out of the service. I want to go where my needs are met. I want to go where I'm served. And if some of that language isn't said out loud, it's because when you say it out loud, you realize how antithetical it is to what Jesus said his disciples should be like. This is the person who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's not about where I go to be fed. It's where I can go to learn how to feed myself and feed others. It's where I can go to serve and put a towel over my arm. And so being on mission means that you're on war, at war with spiritual narcissism and turning everything you can to turn the church outward to reach people who are far from God. And so that's part of um, the importance of what would propel a church to even embrace thinking hybridly. Why would we do all this thinking and, and, and make this effort and do things differently than we have before? Well, it's because of the mission. And as I <coughs> excuse me, mentioned in the book, and as I said earlier, this is only the third time in the history of the church that this has changed. It's only the third time in the history of the church that the nature of the mission field has changed, and how we communicate to that mission field has changed. We've gone from pre-Christian to Christian to post-Christian. We've gone from oral communication, written communication, to digital communication. So in the entire 2,000-year history of the church, this is only the third time that the mission field and how we communicate it to it has changed. And if we're not willing to wake up and realize there are severe, incredible implications to that type of three times in two millennia change, then... Um, I don't know what will wake us up. And so that's what reaching out online is about and doing everything we can to reach out online in light of the mission and in light of all that has happened in our world of late. And so, yeah, that's, that's what that whole section is about. Now, <clears throat> tell us about thinking strategically. And you ask a question, what business are you in and strategy versus tactics? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to someone who who could who I just need to sit there and take notes from <laughs> on things like thinking strategically and strategy versus tactics. I mean, you're a master at that. But essentially, uh, one of the things that I want to challenge or try to challenge the church into that, for example, like what business are you in? I'm reminded of a story that I think I first heard from Tom Peters, who who uh, told about how in the late 1800s, no nobody dominated their field more than the train, the railroad barons dominated the transportation industry. And then along came a new invention, the car. And instead of seizing their marketplace dominance and venturing into the car business, they fought automobiles because the railroad barons didn't realize what business they were in. They thought they were in the train business. They weren't in the train business. They were in the transportation business. Had they understood that, they would have embraced the automobile and the revolution that it brought instead of fight it. And as a result, well, we know what happened to the railroad barons. So I always want to pose to people, what business are you in? And if you apply that to the church, you're not in any kind of program business. You're not, you know, for example, in the Sunday school business or the small group business or anything like that. You know, you're you're in it. You're in the changed lives business. As I mentioned before, you're in the evangelism, assimilation, discipleship, and unleashing business. And, um, and so, you know, that's where I want to push people. I remember, you know, uh, Jim Collins one time uh, said, if you really want to get at what business you're in, if you really want to get at why you do something, he said, ask yourself why five times. 
Like mm. if you say, I own and operate a gas station, ask yourself, why do you do that? And then after you give an answer, ask yourself why you do that. And you ask yourself why five times, you'll finally drill down to the essence of your business. You do that with a church. You say, we're building a church. Well, why are we building a church? Well, to engage the cause of Christ. Why are we engaging the cause of Christ? Well, the world needs Jesus. Well, why does the world need Jesus? Mm. Well, people are dead in their sin, and they face an eternity in hell. Well, why are they still dead in their sin and facing an eternity in hell? Well, because they have not entered into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus on the cross. Well, why have they not entered into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus on the cross if they so desire? They haven't been told or they don't know how. That brings us the purpose of the business we're in. James Emery White has been our guest. What a great guest. And the book Hybrid Church, Rethinking the Church for a Post-Christian Digital Age. We have more Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Our guest in that first segment was James Emery White in Charlotte, North Carolina, talking about his new book. Well, we go from Charlotte to beautiful Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, Peter Brown is there waiting for us. He's a uh, Rollins Professor Emeritus of History at Princeton. His book is out, Journeys of the Mind, A Life in History. Peter, uh, it's so nice to meet you and... uh, Welcome you here to Orlando, Florida. I hope things are well with you. Um, yes, they are. Peter, yes, they are. Peter, tell me about this book, Journeys of the Mind. What's the background here? How did this come about? It came about, I think, the best way to talk about it is, you know, it's a convergence of things, obviously. It's not one single reason. One immediate reason was I received totally by uh, unexpectedly a lot of family papers, family furniture, you know, the way in which old people die, distant members of the family. You suddenly find they they send you things. And I had an elder cousin actually um, in, in, in um, 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 England who included among various bits of furniture a plastic bag which happened to contain family letters and family accounts that date back to the time of Lord Lord Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar. So I was suddenly given a glimpse, which I hadn't expected, of my family in a past age. So I had to sort of figure that out. Then the other thing I think came from the fact that I've been, it grew up in Ireland, but was educated in England. And then having enjoyed my English education and greatly enjoyed being a, being a traditional teacher in All Souls College, Oxford, I then went to the USA and found I had to explain myself. That is, what, what what actually was I? Was I Irish? Was I English? What did I think of Oxford? Did How did it compare with, say, Berkeley or Princeton? So I found myself being actually encouraged to write mainly by my by my junior my junior faculty colleagues 
and my graduate students. Peter Brown is our guest. He's in Princeton, New Jersey. His book, Journeys of the Mind. Uh, Peter, Ireland, you, their, their book breaks into two parts. Part one, Ireland to Shrewsbury. Uh, I, I want to hear more about that. Um, it's a story of, it's a very Irish story um, in the sense that many Irish boys predominantly from the Protestant minority, but not exclusively, would go over to England to have what would amount to the American equivalent of their prep school. So I, for for, for quite a time, lived between my family house by the seaside overlooking Dublin Bay, but then every three times a year, I'd be loaded on top of the 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 Irish mail steamer, would steam across to 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 Holyhead, and within a day find myself being educated in a totally English um, environment. Aiming at success in in basically in the um, English world. My guest is Peter Brown. Peter, in part two, Oxford to All Souls. Explain that period of your life, Oxford to All Souls. What's that mean? It means this is the time when I would be like and am. American um, um, undergraduate, really swatting up. I think the English educational system, the way the grades were distributed, the way you made progress in Oxford, and now I'm talking about a very old Oxford, an Oxford of the 1950s, 1960s. 60s, uh, n- not the modern university, but this was very much the old Oxford. You are being groomed by college tutors, known as Oxford Dons, basically to take one test only, a final, a final ex- examination in your subject. Peter. So it meant it meant that things like the American continuous grading system we actually didn't have. Peter Brown, we're chatting with he's in Princeton, New Jersey. Peter, now take us, please. Uh, this would be called Part Three: Augustine to the Holy Man. Tell us more. Well, there, the reason they're there is that, you know, in a university, history is done in many, many different ways. Um, That's one of the advantages of a history faculty. They represent not just different periods, they represent different ways of actually doing history and also different aspects of history that you were to be interested in. And my evolution was very much, and here I do think my Irish Protestant background influenced me. Um, I wanted to do religious history. I didn't want just to do theology, but I didn't want to do simply what people would call nuts and bows history, battles, kings, or organizations, institutions. I wanted to get at how people were religious in the distant past, 
on, I mean in the truly distant past, and how they express themselves and what the impact of these religious ideas were on society as a whole. That sense of religion spilling over from the study, from the meditation room, from the churches to the society as a whole. And with somebody like St. Augustine, who was at one and the same time a towering religious genius, author of the autobiography of the Confessions, very much a book written as if he were alone with God, as if the world wasn't there. At the same time, you find that he's actually an, an active pastor, an active bishop, really making his mark on the society of his own time. Mm. And that, that was what was happening in North Africa in the time of, of St. Augustine, where it was largely bishops, often very highly educated bishops, who had begun to make the Christian presence really felt in society. The holy man belongs to simply a different Christianity that's much more the Christianity of the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. And, you know, the Roman Empire at this time was a vast place. Mm -hmm. It would take, oh, I forget, a whole month to get from one end of the empire to the other if you were moving very fast. But certainly the holy man was much more a product of the what are now basically um, Arab Muslim lands, a product of Syria and Egypt and eastern Turkey. But in both cases, what I really wanted to get at was not just simply how these people thought, how they prayed, but how they left an impact on the world. Mm. My guest in Princeton, New York, New Jersey, Peter Brown. We're talking about his book, Journeys of the Mind, you know, Life in History. Uh, we have to take a break, and then we have another segment with Peter. When we come back, uh, he's going to talk to us about the world of late antiquity to Iran. Folks, we're still working hard trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you could be a huge help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just check in. We need to hear from you. Tell us your feelings. Interested in season tickets, if all this comes about? Uh, that would be a huge help. We need to show Major League Baseball that there's enormous interest here in Central Florida. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990. And FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back with Peter Brown. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. We're talking with Peter Brown, his book, Journeys of the Mind, A Life in History. He's a, um, a professor emeritus of history at Princeton University. And Peter, as we mentioned before the break, uh, the next topic, the world of late antiquity to Iran, uh, I want to hear about this. Okay. Uh, this is the story in many ways of a sudden widening of my historical interests. Um, how to put it? It was a turn to the East, is the way I would always think of it. It was based on a realization, I think, above all, that while most people study the history of the Roman of the Roman Empire, particularly, and don't forget this is the backdrop of all of the history I'm talking about. Most of them see this 
entirely in terms of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And that makes a good theme. It works for any number of adventure movies, any cartoons like Hagar the Horrible, the, the fall of Rome, a big, major catastrophe, which we also are always afraid might repeat itself. What I came to realize was this emphasis on the fall of Rome really only affected the western part of the Roman Empire. Now, the western part emerged as, as, as Western Europe and therefore is a very voluble vocal presence, and said, this is our history. Edward Gibbon, the great historian, fastened on this and said, oh yes, the fall of the empire in the West, that is the most awful revolution. He was speaking 18th century English. This meant the most awesome change ever experienced. And Quite frankly, I found that wasn't the case. Um, the, to, to the east of, of Italy, the Roman Empire, which we now call the Byzantine Empire, continued, and it continued very well and very, 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 very actively for at least 300 more years. And that what concerned it wasn't so much the northern barbarians and the northern barbarians of the west of course have extra profile because they're often thought of as the origin of modern european nations the french are supposed to derive from the franks the english from the anglo-saxons the vikings and scandinavians um these are the the the, the sort of enemies of Rome we think about most readily, but the really big gorilla, I mean the thousand pound gorilla, was the Iranian Empire, and it was the Iranian Empire that was so much a challenge because it was not so alien. It also had claims over the Middle East, over what is now Iraq and Syria and eastern Turkey. And therefore, at the time when the Western Empire was basically going to pieces in a rather amiable way, Byzantium and Iran were the two guerrillas really duking it out over the what is called the bridge of fertile land called the fertile crescent between mesopotamia and the eastern mediterranean and that's where the real action was and as far as the generation of culture goes this and not western europe despite the odd genius like augustine this was the real intellectual powerhouse of the Christian church. Mm. So any Christian view had to include a, what we would call a, a late antiquity that moved from the West across to the Eastern Mediterranean that included what is now modern Turkey, the Eastern Balkans, Syria, Jordan, Arabia even, and then across the Euphrates and Tigris, the ancient, ancient cradles of civilization in what was once Babylon and is now um, 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 Iraq. So what you're, what you're looking at is the unfolding of a map much larger than the normal map on which against which we see the Roman, the, the end of the Roman of the Roman Empire, in its western parts. Tell me about Berkeley, nineteen seventy-five, to Cairo, Peter. Well, that was a very interesting combination. 
um, first of all, Berkeley was my absolutely first American university. I had been, I had given, I had given lectures. I had a student, graduate student, Professor Bondi, who taught me Hebrew. Um, when I was in Oxford, I stayed with that family in Notre Dame. I even saw the first, the first premiere of Star Wars in the shopping center of Notre Dame. So I had, I had the occasional vision, the visit, partly family, mainly academic. Berkeley was the first university I came to intending to remain there. And what struck me was, above all, um, it's hard to put one's finger on it, but I think there was the sense of ease. This was a very open place. Academically, it was possible to combine disciplines to overlook academic frontiers in ways that um, in ways that the English system, for all its virtues, looked very rigid indeed. There were only certain things you could do. You could do them at a very high level, but that was all you could do. What I loved was the American elective course system. That is, the ability of students to choose almost any topic that interests them and receive first-class teaching. So I, I really, I basically um, binged out on the elective elect course system. Um, I was also very struck by how serious many people were in Berkeley. One always hears of Berkeley as somewhat a rather comic university like, I forget who's the man, David Lodge, uh, talking about Euphoria State University. Um, those elements of, cra of crankiness didn't or flakiness didn't really strike me. What struck me was that here was a society of people who were, by European standards and certainly by Middle Eastern standards, enormously free to do what they wanted with their lives. And a good deal of them spent a lot of time thinking very seriously of what they actually should do. So when I came to Berkeley, I came to, in some ways, a very easeful university where I could get things done with much greater ease than in the more traditional English system. But I also came to a university which took many issues very seriously. I want you, Peter, to uh, explain part six, Berkeley to Princeton. We have about two minutes. Fill us in. Okay. Well, Berkeley to Princeton wasn't totally my choice. My wife was given a job in Princeton, and this was the night late this is the early 80s. I was fortunate enough to have a MacArthur grant, and I would I, I went with her rather than have a commuter marriage, which I did not want. Um, so the choice wasn't from one university to one which I considered superior. It was a choice between two very different universities. And Princeton, I always has always struck me as being an intense, like a sort of one of those angry stars based on high gravity. High gravity was the way I would have seen it. People didn't hang out. They had power lunches. <laughs> um, when I thought of opening up a general open seminar in Berkeley for graduate students, the graduate students were, were delighted. They were quite prepared to come 
to my own house with six packs of beer and um, a pizza. In Princeton, nothing like that could happen. It had to be a regular seminar, regularly funded at regular hours. Um, it's those it's those where the cho- those where the choices which I found. Mike. Obviously, now that I know Princeton a lot better, some of these seem rather, 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 um, rather um, passing impressions, but they were the ones I had. My guest has been Peter Brown, Princeton, New Jersey. Book, Journeys of the Mind, A Life in History. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We'll see you next weekend. In the meantime, have a wonderful week ahead. Stay tuned to AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. See you next weekend. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.